Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. And if you believe in the Songcraft mission, please consider supporting us by visiting patreon.com slash songcraftshow. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is roots-oriented singer-songwriter Paul Thorne. The Tupelo, Mississippi native started out as a professional boxer before being discovered by Miles Copeland and signing a recording contract with A&M Records. Thorne eventually struck out on his own and formed the independent Perpetual Obscurity Records with manager and songwriting partner Billy Maddox. They've gone on to release nine studio albums, four of which have hit the Billboard charts. All Music writes that Thorne's catalog has balanced blues, rock, gospel, country, and soul in a singular strain of Americana with songs that embrace the human condition with their humor, irony, pathos, tenderness, heartbreak, grief, anger, and joy. Though his songs have been recorded by Shenandoah, Tanya Tucker, Toby Keith, Sawyer Brown, Kim Ritchie, Billy Ray Cyrus, Jerry Jeff Walker, Diane Shore, and others, nobody delivers a Paul Thorne song with the same touch as the man himself. From It's a Great Day to Whoop Somebody's Ass, to Pimps and Preachers, to I Don't Like Half the Folks I Love, to Mission Temple Fireworks Stand, Paul's diverse catalog has built a dedicated audience who love his unique sense of the craft and his mesmerizing skills as a performer. His latest album, produced by Matt Ross Spang in Memphis, is Never Too Late to Call. Part 1 well, Scott, you know, sometimes we like to open up these uh, episodes with a, a bit of talk about what's going on in the world around us, particularly in the world of music. Um, and, you know, I want to talk about something that actually happened a couple weeks ago, right. which in the sort of news cycle of 2022 actually means it happened four years ago. <laughs> um, but I'm referring, of course, to the Grammys, which... Yes. Um, Music's biggest night, they call it. Music's biggest night. Uh, and it was, it was a big night. Um, there are times when I turn on the Grammys and I'm a little underwhelmed, honestly. And there are times I turn it on and I'm just whelmed. And <laughs> this time though, man, the, not only the performances, but the acts and the albums and the songs that, that were up for awards, I was like, you know what? The future of music is bright. There was some really awesome stuff going on at the Grammys this year. Yeah. Yeah, it's great to watch um, artists who you feel like are really artists. Yeah. Um, and, you know, seeing somebody like Brandy Carlisle um, you know, have the opportunity on the Grammy stage to let the world see what she does. She is an incredible songwriter and an amazing singer. I mean, yeah. her her voice is just incredible. And she's one of those people that's, you know, involved in, in all kinds of stuff as a producer, as a writer, as a performer. But um, yeah, she's incredible. Her is an amazing artist, yeah. um, you know, multi-instrumentalist. And, you know, it, it is just cool to see groups up there that you're like, yeah, these, these people have, have really got something. This is not, you know, some marketing thing. Yeah. And, and it really seemed like a, a triumphant night in a lot of ways for, you know, the female artist to see, you know, Brandy out there doing her thing. Um, Olivia Rodrigo with a great performance and the wins that she had, you mentioned her, uh, Carrie Underwood had a, a pretty great performance as well. Billie Eilish. Billie Eilish. I mean, just incredible. You know, Debbie these... Boone. Debbie. <laughs> <laughs> I missed that one, but I bet it would have lit up my life that, if I'd seen that, it. Maybe that was an older Grammys it, that it, I'm thinking of. I get confused. Yeah, you need to I, clean out the DVR. I've got long COVID. Um, 
<laughs> but I, you know, on the other side of the gender spectrum, uh, Silk Sonic oh, was yeah. just fantastic. The, I mean, the opening performance uh, was incredible, and then just the way those guys pretty much stayed in character all night uh, was just uh, like if you haven't seen the Grammys yet, you need to watch it just just to check out uh, Anderson Pack's hair. <laughs> it pretty was, awesome. It was magnificent. Um, it's always you know I think Song of the Year is the one that we watch the most yeah. closely here at Songcraft for obvious reasons. But you know there was some some interesting things to note uh, in the Song of the Year. Uh, it was Leave the Door Open, which what yeah. I hate to you know do a spoiler. But guys, the, again, it, it was, was two, two weeks ago. ago yeah. So, yeah, if you if you hadn't watched it by now, then yeah. you're not gonna. Um, but you know, Driver's License was up for Song of the Year by Olivia Rodrigo, which was co-written by Dan Nigro, who you know, of course, has been a guest on on Songcraft. So it was cool that we you know months ago got to really get the inside scoop yeah. on how that song was was put together. Um, you know, another one is uh, A Beautiful Noise by Alicia Keys and, and Brandy Carlisle. But you know, some of the writers on that were Brandy Clark, uh, mm-hmm. Laurie McKenna. Um, Linda Perry, all yep. have been guests, uh, guests on on this show. Um, so it's cool to watch the Grammys and then see the people whose names are getting thrown up on the screen for the contenders for the song of the year, you know, the yeah. best song of the year. And it's like, wow, we've, we've gotten to hear the insights of, of these folks, which is, you know, such a, a cool thing. You know, I think there's obviously, you know, artists and, and songwriters have the opportunity to do interviews, but to really get the chance to talk with these people about songwriting itself, yeah. you know, and, and, you know, not just like, who are you dating, <laughs> but, <laughs> but like to get to talk about yeah. like how songs are put together, you know, it, it, it just sort of watching the Grammys makes me pinch myself and go, well, we get to do something that's really cool, you know? Yeah. And uh, it sort of reminds me of our uncanny ability to make everything about us. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, and that we we came away from this this transcendent Grammy evenings, and 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 I think both of us were like, look at how good our podcast <laughs> right. is. That's my takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I will say, you know, uh, Allison Russell, who who has been a guest, um, was was nominated, I think, for three Grammys. Yeah. Uh, Yola was was nominated. Natalie Hemby was nominated. Um, Cinco Paul was nominated for for Schmigadoon, and I mentioned all of those people. Uh, and their nominations because none of them won. So yeah. uh, maybe Songcraft also is a bit of a, a curse, a bit of a Grammy killer. Uh, so if you want to get nominated for a Grammy, you should definitely come on our show. If you want to <laughs> win the Grammy, I I, I don't know, but y- you know, I think uh, so. So maybe it's a double edged sword. Yeah, that's true. I, I tell you, the, the other thing that was that was fun for me about the Grammys is watching my kids watch it, um, and particularly my seven year old who was just so pumped for Olivia Rodrigo yeah. to, to get um, the, she, she got to watch one of the acceptance speeches. Um, she had to go to bed, you know, but it, it reminded <laughs> Olivia me of, or your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> I think Olivia stayed up late that <laughs> night. Um, but I remember being a kid and watching Michael Jackson just sweep the Grammys and feeling so validated. Right. That, that my guy, your generation. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, was being recognized by the broader music community. Of course, I didn't realize that he was a veteran by that point, and I, I hadn't exactly discovered Michael Jackson in 1984 right. or whatever it was. But uh, it, it's fun to watch like the next generation consider this stuff important and, and to watch the Grammys with a sense of sort of seven-year-old gravity. Right. You know? <laughs> right. Which puts it all in perspective. Yeah. Right? Uh, and cool to see Lenny Kravitz come out and play with her because, you know, we were big Lenny Kravitz fans yeah. back in, uh, in in our high school days and still have, you know, 
mad respect for Lenny's music. I didn't, I, and I, Lenny's I didn't aging say, backwards. I, I didn't say lyrics there. I said music, but <laughs> mad respect for, for Lenny's music. <laughs> Still and, love to have you on the show, Lenny, if you're listening. <laughs> if you're listening. But uh, yeah, I mean, we, we Lenny Kravitz was an important guy, I think, in each of our musical development because he pointed us back to Al Green and to yeah. Led Zeppelin and to different influences that we, uh, you know, and now seeing him as kind of a, Playing the role of the elder statesman at the Grammys is, a, you know, I have mixed feelings about about bit, that, but yeah. uh, but it, but it was fun to see him out there uh, in his, you know, plastic pants or whatever it was <laughs> he was he was wearing at age fifty seven, but still somehow looking like an Adonis. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how Lenny pulls that off. I, I'd like to know maybe it's something in his diet um, that that. If anybody has those tips, please send them along. Uh, he seems like he's got kind of a Tom Brady thing going on. Maybe he doesn't eat any nightshades. Um, whatever it is, I'd like to be on that train. I um, just so I can just so I can touch my toes. Now I you know I'm not a big sports guy. It was Tom Brady uh, from the Brady Bunch. Is yes, that, yeah, yeah, he's the youngest daughter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Part two. Once again, our guest on this episode of Songcraft is critically acclaimed singer-songwriter Paul Thorne, who has carved out an independent career from his home base in Tupelo, Mississippi, that has earned him legions of dedicated fans. His latest release is a highly personal album titled Never Too Late to Call. Paul, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thank y'all for having me. It's uh, quite an honor to be here. Yeah, it's great to speak with you. Um, now, I understand that you grew up in... in Tupelo, Mississippi. I have a a very vivid uh, Tupelo memory, which is that uh, several years ago, I took my dad on a music themed road trip, and we we're going throughout the South and going to different music uh, sites of interest. And of course, Elvis's birthplace is there in Tupelo. And my uh, I'd gotten a call. I was trying to do an interview with Merle Haggard for a project, and I got a call from his publicist. Uh, the day before my dad and I were going to be in Tupelo and she says, Merle can do this interview tomorrow. Um, and I'm like, oh crap, I'm on the road. I, you know, I got to record this thing. And so I told my dad, I said, we got to find a place with a great cell signal. Cause I can't be like dropping a call from Merle Haggard. And it turned out that the place we found with the greatest cell signal was right at Elvis's birthplace at a picnic table. <laughs> and so I'm sitting at this picnic table looking at the house that Elvis grew up in, talking on the phone with Merle Haggard, and I thought, this is maybe one of the more magical musical <laughs> moments, you know, of my life. That's like a, a, a Forrest Gump reporter story. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now that I'm talking to a guy who grew up in Tupelo, is there actually that kind of musical magic around you all the time? <laughs> well, uh, yes. The, the reason I say that is, I, you know, my father's a Pentecostal preacher, and I grew up singing in, in Pentecostal churches where the music is incredible. They had, they had two types of, of churches when I was growing up. They had the churches where the white folks attended, and they had the church where the black folks attended. And that's just, but we all got along good. It's, just, it's that we had a different style of worship, like at the, at the black churches they would play like a rhythm and blues gospel, and then at the white churches they did like a hillbilly. A kind of music but it was gospel so it was a wonderful uh training ground for me just like elvis actually because uh, believe it or not elvis actually attended a lot of the same churches that i actually attended myself and mm. so that mojo you're talking about in my opinion in the south it, it comes 
largely from the churches. You know, and I think uh, cell reception was the reason that Vernon and Gladys picked that location for their house. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I, well, yeah. They, they, well, they until that cell came around, they was having to put tinfoil on their antenna. Exactly. <laughs> you know, like we used to do when I was growing up. Yeah. <laughs> you, could get, you could get two channels, but if you put that tinfoil on there, you could get PBS and you could watch Mr. Rogers. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, you, you talk about your history growing up in the church, and uh, you know, a song like "Pimps and Preachers" tells us uh, a bit, gives us kind of context for your upbringing. And it sounds like, you know, your life as a child, you saw as much Saturday night as you saw Sunday morning. My daddy had a Cadillac, my uncle Joe Ford, one was Satan's angel, and one worked for the Lord. They had some hard-earned wisdom. They both became my teachers. I was a young disciple of pimps and preachers. The school of life was open. It's actually autobiographical because my father, you know, like I said, was a preacher. And his brother, my uncle, was a literal pimp. And, you know, a lot of people, they may not really know what that means, but it doesn't mean just a guy that talks fast and, right. and, and, and wears flashy clothes. What it, what it entails is really not something to be proud of because pimps are predators. They prey on uh, weak people, and they, they, they turn out young runaways to sell their bodies and give them the money. And that's what my uncle did, and I saw it up close, you know. And uh, I've seen uh, girls come up to my uncle. This is a long time ago, by the way, but mm. come up to my uncle and 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 have him uh, have five one hundred dollar bills, and he would take the money and look at it, and then he'd throw it on the ground and say, "I said a thousand and then he'd oh. follow it with the B word, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah, Jesus. And so it was brutal, man. So I saw. I saw good and bad up close, you know, and, yeah. uh, and I kind of learned that nobody's all bad and nobody's all good, you know. Hmm. Well, I understand that your uh, uncle was also kind of uh, became your boxing coach and, and boxing was kind of your path prior to to music. And, you know, I, I don't know if there there is a connection at all or if it's something that you've thought much about. But, you know, is there is there anything about just kind of that fighting spirit or, or competitive spirit uh, that it takes to be a boxer that you see having any kind of parallels um, that it takes to be, you know, a songwriter and a musician? Uh there, I can't really compare the two because the the one thing about being a boxer is you're constantly f having to face fear. You you mm. you got a fight coming up and you know who your opponent is, and you know this guy's coming to knock your head off, and so you go through every day just being scared, anticipating. It's almost like you're going to be executed, and uh, you're just waiting it out. And uh, mm. uh, and and to be honest, I never really. I, I, I did pretty good at boxing. I, I did pretty far. I went pretty far in boxing. But looking back with with clear vision, the only reason I boxed, honestly, was because uh, my uncle, who I idolized, one of my my pimp uncle, when he was – I idolized him when I was a kid because I just thought he was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, even though the things he was doing was wrong, there was something about him that just drew me in. And he used to be a boxer as well. And so whatever he did, I wanted to do too. 
So I took up boxing not so much because I love boxing. is It was kind of like I wanted to gain his approval because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, to me back in that day, he was he was this mystical figure that I wanted to be like. And so I did fairly well. You know, I wasn't by any stretch a great fighter, but I was very good. I was, I was good enough that in 88, I got to fight on national television against the four-time world champion, you know, Roberto Hands of Stone Duran. And, and you know, they just don't let you get that because you want to get in there. You have to whoop a lot of other people to prove that you can whoop somebody, and then yeah. they'll give you a chance to step up in class. And, right. Uh, you know, and and I did – it's kind of like when a kid goes and, and he shines at a, on a college football team, and he's truly good, but there's a jump that – he can't make when he tries to go to the pros and that's kind of the and i was a professional don't get me wrong but i just didn't have that gift you know like people like tiger woods in golf or michael jordan in basketball uh uh and roberto duran in boxing they have a gift and Mm -hmm. a lot of people when they ask me about that particular fight they say the obvious question did he hit hard well yeah he hit hard but a guy in a bark that don't know how to fight can hit hard what Mm. made him special was he was incredibly hard to hit Mm -hmm. i can't even i cannot he doesn't get recognized for his defensive skills but purists who know boxing they'll tell you man trying to hit him is like trying to catch lightning he Mm. he he had this incredible ability it's like when you throw a cat off a roof Somehow it lands on its feet. That was Roberto Duran. He, I mean, there was nothing I could do that he hadn't seen before. And he, he could almost anticipate what I was going to do before I did it. And mm. I really, I really got a real lesson on on what what greatness really really is on that night. Yeah. And you know they they stopped the fight after the sixth round because I had a horrific cut, but uh, I did get some punches in and. And I busted his eye open, and I'm really happy about that. And uh, <laughs> we actually rode to the hospital in the same ambulance. Wow. <laughs> That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. You know, you talk about this idea of, you know, if you're an athlete, there's you might be good, but there's something that separates, you know, the good athletes from the ones who can really take it all the way. And I, I think there is a parallel there with mm-hmm. songwriters. You know, there's plenty of people yep. who are – in their bedroom, they're writing some songs and they're pretty good songs, you know, and they, they play them for their family and friends and they go, yeah, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. But there's a dividing line between those folks and the people who do have a gift who can, can take it further. And, you know, obviously you have managed to carve out a uh, respectable career as an independent singer songwriter. You have been able to take that further than, you know, the, the, percentage of people who are out there writing good songs you know you've got some that extra thing that allows you to 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 take it further when did you first realize that that songwriting was something that you had a a special uh, ability toward or something that you knew that that was going to be a passion for you well i'm gonna tell you how that happened Uh, i have to go back to when i was 17 years old and we were having family christmas and my cousin, my first cousin Stanley came over, and this is sound. This is gonna sound crazy, but at that time he was the keyboard player in Parliament and the Funkadelics. Mm. 
Well, yeah, yeah, he was the my my first cousin was, and so I so when he came over for Christmas, he had cool clothes on, and and he just looked like the coolest guy ever. And I and uh, I said to him, I said, hey, uh, Stan, I said, uh, I write songs, and by and when I when I say I write songs, I was just seventeen. I never had any any training, or I was just writing little corny songs about you know girls that turn me down at school all the time. And uh, but Stanley came into my room and he listened to my songs and I think he recognized that I didn't really know what I was doing. But he also said I he also noticed that I had something, and so he said, "Look," he said, "I had somebody I want you to meet," and it wound up being this man named Billy Maddox, who at that time was a very successful country hit songwriter. He had had his most noted song. The most known was a song by Hank Williams Jr. called. Uh, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, you remember that song? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. I don't well, he go, he yeah. yeah he had a whole bunch of songs that were like in the eighties, late eighties, nineties that were that did well. And so my cousin Stanley took me to meet Billy, this who was the only guy in our town or near that was that really had learned the craft. He was a real songwriter. And so I met Billy, and Billy also saw that I had something in the raw that needed polishing. And so we started writing together two nights a week. Uh, just me and him started writing songs together. At, at the same time, I was boxing professionally, slash, I was also working in a furniture factory, slash, I was also playing one night a week in a pizza restaurant in the corner while people eat pizza. You know, huh. I was doing all this stuff, but, Stan, but, but Billy Maddox taught me what a, a verse was, what a chorus was, what a bridge was all of it just the basics and uh even though i'm not really a country singer the the way i write it's my songs are like stories they're like country songs they have a there's a beginning there's a middle and there's an end it's a it's a little mini three minute story and that's kind of yeah. the, that's kind of the style that i write in and uh you know B billy maddox when i met billy through my cousin who played with funkadelics that really changed everything because somebody recognized me and said, hey, man, you got something. You know, Billy said, you got something, and let's work on it. Let's tweak it. Let's develop it. Let's, let's, let's collaborate. And we did. And, and you know, okay, I'm, that was, I was 17 then. I'm 57 now. And Billy and I have been writing together since that, that entire time. Wow. And, uh, and he also, uh, he formerly was in a, the oil, was in an oil distribution business, and uh, that they sold out of that, and he's been my he's he's he has been my manager all this time too. You know, a lot of people have talent, and they're going. I write. People come up to me all the time, and they say, "Paul, I write songs." And I, I say, "That's great, man." Yeah. And then I listen to them, and you know, ninety nine percent of them they're just not good, and it's not yeah. because the person. Some uh, some people that some people let's be honest, some people don't have talent but they don't know that they don't have talent and they keep on doing <laughs> doing it and that's you you can't fault anybody for trying but but you know not everybody has the talent to be a songwriter that's something you have to understand too you know uh, yeah. it it is a talent but it's in the raw and it's in the rough it, without a mentor to to steer you and show you the basics uh it's really hard to become a songwriter in my opinion
somewhere along the line, uh, Miles Copeland uh, became a part of your story as well. And you know, for people who may not know, Miles Copeland has been a large figure in the music world. He's the brother of Stuart Copeland, who was the drummer of the police. But Miles has, you know, kind of had his fingers in a lot of different projects. How, so how did you go from a guy who's kind of learning how to write songs and figuring out the craft, boxing, playing in the restaurant, all that kind of thing, to beginning to get some, you know, some big attention in that kind of way? Well, I'll tell you how that happened. Uh, when I was, you know, I told you I was playing in the pizza restaurant one night a week. And all these years I was working in the factory, which wound up being 12 years. During all those 12 years, Billy and I were still meeting twice a week and writing songs. And over those 12 years, we built up a massive catalog of songs. And so like a lot of wannabes out there, we, uh, we started sending cassette tapes out to just try to get anybody who was anybody to notice us. Mm. And uh, this man who worked for Miles Copeland heard my cassette and he liked it. And uh, and uh, to make a long story short, they sent, they came down to Tupelo literally to hear hear me playing in this pizza restaurant. It was it was uh it was it wasn't Miles that came himself. It was his represent a guy that worked under him named Wyatt Easterling. So I noticed this guy was watching me play while I at the pizza restaurant, and but he looked different. He had a business suit on and all this kind of stuff. And <laughs> when I took a break from playing, he said, "Hey, I'm I'm Wyatt Easterling. I work for Miles Copeland." And he says, "We've heard your songs and we're interested in giving you a publishing deal." And so, to make another long story short, uh, two weeks later, I was able to turn in my my notice that I was going to quit the factory, and uh, and I was going to and I got signed to uh, IRS uh, in a publishing deal, and then I got uh, a record deal on A and M Records, and they, you know they gave me a, a, what I thought was a lot of money at the time, and you know I quit my job and all that kind of stuff, and being a minister's son. I never was allowed to go to concerts, secular concerts, when I grew up, when I was growing up. So literally, the first time I ever attended a concert in my entire life was when I opened for Sting in Nashville in front of about 13,000 people wow. with, an, <laughs> with, an, with no band and just an acoustic guitar. Wow. And, and, wow. Uh, and so I did a bunch of dates with Sting, and it, and it and they all they all went really good. All the gigs went so good. I mean, I I, I had sort of in, I guess in the pizza restaurant going up in church, I had sort of developed this act I do, and mm. and it worked real well. And I did a bunch of shows with Sting, and then the and then we got this call after that that uh, Jeff Beck had heard about me, and he and he was looking for somebody to open a tour for him so right out of the box i did all those dates with sting and then i went on a big tour with jeff beck and so there i was again coming out on stage doing 30 minutes in front of a bunch of guitar geeks and uh <laughs> you know and uh and even even then though i i won and when i say i won i was received well yeah and i had developed a little act i did that the people really liked Huh. And, and the word got out about this guy with I'm talking about myself, but this the word got out that there was a guy I could go out and entertain any crowd with just a guitar. And and so it led to a bunch of other dates. I did a full tour, you know, opening for uh, Mark Knopfler. I did a I became friends and did a whole bunch of dates with John Prine and just and when I was doing these opening slots, 
I didn't realize that we could come, what really wound up happening is the next time I would come into that same town, not all of them, but a lot of the people remembered me from, say, opening for John Prine or whatever. And so they would come back and see me do my own show on my own. And so, and so really, that was really how I, over time, built my career. And, you know, you know, most of the time now I, I, I headline wherever I play. But, you know, if somebody's got more juice than me and, you know, and I can get in front of their crowd, I'll still do all that, you know. Mm. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of things lined up, you know. And did, my record deal with A&M didn't do anything because unbeknownst to me, uh, when my record came out, it was A uh, and M was being bought out by a larger company, Interscope, and so all the baby acts like myself who didn't have no juice just got the boot, right? Which actually wound up being a blessing in disguise because me and Billy Maddox, uh, the guy that me, that I wrote with, he, we also had a studio and everything, so we made this, we had this idea that we, you know, we were selling so much merchandise at the shows. I, it was un. I can't even. You wouldn't believe it if if I told you how many CDs we sold every night at shows. It was crazy. So now that we lost our deal, we got we pressed our own CDs. We recorded our own CDs. We packaged them. We did everything. We just loaded up the trunk with with CDs and T-shirts and everything. And we just we just decided to become our own independent label. And for a hoot. We we named it, and we still have this. We still keep this name today because it's it's just a cool name. We our name of our record company is uh, Perpetual Obscurity Records, and, uh, <laughs> and we did it as a joke because you know we got off to a rough start. You know, lost the deal and everything, but man, it wound up being a big right decision. Man, yeah, wow. I, yeah. I, I I don't know for sure. I, I could be wrong, but I think me and Billy. And somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but I really believe Billy and I might be the first truly independent record company. Wow. Yeah. I, somebody might be, but I ain't never met them. Cause yeah. you know, cause when they say we're on a we're on an independent label, that's not what that really means. That means right. that that independent, in my definition, is I own everything. Uh, yeah. uh, an independent deal for somebody else just means. Uh, they're gonna they're gonna try to do my record and if if nothing happens who cares you know yeah <laughs> right that's how it is you, you know just a, a a quick look back at, at your A&M stint you know your your debut album Hammer and Nail it's interesting that looking at the title track and the line I'd rather be a hammer than a nail and I'm sure people point this out all the time there's sort of a through line from that and the old song El Condor Pasa the Simon and Garfunkel song What's interesting about yours, I feel like Paul Simon's version of that line sounds like a man who's used to being the nail, and your song sounds like the hammer. It 
it's a common phrase. I mean, yeah, I, I'm aware of the Paul Simon thing, but that's that Paul Simon didn't make that up. That's he didn't a, make that, that up. Yeah. No, that's an old saying. This oldest time, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that 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 song to this day is a crowd favorite with my fans. Yeah. And I think it's cool. There's that verse in there. You know, you're you're talking about you know fighting uh, Roberto Duran. Yeah. And, and you've got that whole verse uh, in there that incorporates that true autobiography you know into yeah. the song but you know i think that it, that one of the hallmarks of a great songwriter is you can take something like that and and you've got a verse there that's highly specific to you and your own experience uh and at the same time like you say it's one of your more popular songs i think there is a unique giftedness as a songwriter to be able to write something that's personal and even maybe personally specific yet other people who hear it still resonate with it and feel like it's part of their life story too. Um, and I wonder if you have any thoughts about, you know, as a writer, especially a writer who, who is really uh, connects with a live audience, um, you know, any thoughts about just the, the skill set uh, as a writer that it takes to be able to, to continue to make your songs personal, but also universal in a way that people hear them and they, they just, you know, resonate with it. Yeah, you know, that's a hard question, but I, whatever I write and sing about, I, I ask myself, the, the person that's out there listening to this, are they going to get this, and is it going to resonate with them, you know? And the the Mac Daddy of that, to me, was John Prine. Uh, his The reason people loved him so much is because he wrote what they were feeling, man, and he did it with empathy, and and he did it with love, and that's why and he was worshipped till the day he dies. And I don't con compare even be close to John Prine in in, in skill set as a songwriter, uh, but he was he was the benchmark for me uh, to to write something that makes everybody feel something. If if we tried to talk about every single album you've made, we we would far exceed the amount of time we have here. So even just jumping into a couple of these as you begin this string of independent albums, um, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about Mission Temple Fireworks Stand um, and and the title track of, of that one. Uh, that's just so interesting to me because I like Scott. I grew up in Nashville and growing up in the South, you become you know very accustomed to seeing these gigantic fireworks emporiums. Um, along the roadway and you know we move out to California and I don't see fireworks for sale you know up and down the road like I did in the south but what's funny is I didn't really notice that, that was you know a thing until I left uh, for me it was just the most normal thing in the world and people must have fireworks stand everywhere but, you know with the kind of writing that you do I imagine you got to stay pretty aware of your surroundings and understanding what's unique even if it's not necessarily unique to you if that makes sense yeah well, as far as Mission Temple goes, uh, me and Billy were riding down the road one day, and you know, being a Pentecostal uh, in in the Pentecostal faith growing up, they used to have something called tent revivals. You know what right. that is? Yep, that's a Southern thing. And so we went, we was driving down this highway outside of Memphis, and we saw a a fireworks stand with a big tent, and I, and I just looked at Billy and I said, man, I said. That's the kind. That is the exact same kind of tents they have revivals in when I was growing mm -hmm. up, and we we started going back and forth. I said, I said, man, wouldn't it be cool if some preacher who maybe got tired of religious politics or whatever, just decided he wanted to go independent and he could open up a 
a church in a firework stand. He could sell the firecrackers to pay the rent, but then he, <laughs> but then he could pick and choose who he wanted to witness to, and he wouldn't be under any pressure. And uh, <laughs> and so uh, that's how Mission Temple came into existence, and and having such a, a knowledgeable uh, vernacular of what of you know the Pentecostal vernacular. I was I was able to and with Billy uh, we were able to construct this song that that we're really proud of and it and that's another song that's kind of a staple for me you know uh, people want to hear that song because they love to sing the answering line on the chorus and everything. people love people seem to really like that song and that's i'm i'm really proud of that song it it actually uh later it got recorded of all things it got recorded by uh the country group sawyer brown remember them yeah, yeah. sure and uh and they and it got uh it won uh the christian country song of the year huh. yeah that was that was a kind of a neat moment yeah you know? yeah well, you know, and there's another song on that record, uh, Everybody Looks Good at the Starting Line, that uh, jazz vocalist Diane Schur recorded, I think, a, a year or so ago. Um, talk a little bit about uh, being a writer and, and hearing other people, you know, having that opportunity to hear other artists interpret a work that you've created. You know, if you look at my resume of songs I've had recorded by other artists, it's actually pretty impressive in a way but in a way it's not because I, I learned something about pitching songs. Well, first of all, I never pitched songs. The artists would get copies of my CDs and they would contact me and want to record something off of them. Right. Uh, but, uh, I mean, I, I, I had people, everybody from Toby Keith to Jerry Jeff Walker record my songs, but I learned the hard way about how the songwriting business works. It's like, yeah, I got, a song on on Sawyer Brown. Yeah, I did. But I got it on them after they had had their heyday at radio. Right. And you know, I got a song recorded by, you know, Ronnie Millsap. Sounds great. But he had but radio but the time the song came out, radio radio wouldn't touch him with a 10-foot pole. Sure. And so, you know, a bunch of them. A bunch of I could go on name and names. But the songwriting business, which I never was really in, uh, you know, as a thing, what these shrewd songwriters do, and it's good, and they're smart for doing it. They won't give their A-drawer songs to somebody who's not hot at the moment. You see yeah. what I'm saying? Right. And so I, I was green. I was just I was just so excited, you know, that, uh, you know, somebody was recording my songs, and it, I, I just felt so, so honored. And I was, and I still am. But uh, but almost all the cuts I got were people that had already had their day. Yeah, because sure. see, they were starving for songs because I, nobody would give them any good songs. Right. Yeah. And I yeah. had I had a bunch of good songs, but I didn't know how to play the game of get a you know they're they're you know they were at that time they were like trying to get a Tim McGraw cut. You see what I'm saying? Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The guard had changed. Looking at a song, uh, it's a great day to whoop somebody's ass. 
Um, that's, that's one of my favorites out of your catalog. I think it's a lot of people's favorite. And I love the fact that it's a live version because the energy of that and even the, the times you kind of like laugh, you know, super fun. Have you ever had one of those days when nothing goes right? Your wife starts bitching about whatever it was she was bitching about last night. So you escape into the bathroom just to sit there on your throne. But after you finish your business, the toilet paper's gone. Let's sing together. It's a great day for me to whoop somebody's ass. Come on. It's a bad day. So you better get off of my back. You might get cold, cocked. If you cross my path. Cause it's a great day. Everybody, come on. For me to whoop somebody's ass. <laughs> I've never recorded that song and put it on any project. The, re- the What happened on that is uh, uh, I was on tour as the opening act for Toby Keith of, uh, and the country singer, and I was going to go on this. Well, Toby was supposed to go on this syndicated radio show the next morning called Bob and Tom. Have you all heard of them? Yeah. And so Toby, for whatever reason, something happened and he couldn't go to the show that morning and so they had no guests and so they asked me because they didn't have nobody else and they didn't know me from adam to be the guest on the show and the night before i went on and then they were i found this out the night before and and i didn't have i knew that they liked funny songs and so that night before i went on the show me and billy wrote it's a great day to whoop somebody's ass wow. in our hotel in our hotel room and i went that next morning and I had a good appearance with them and I sang it's a great daddy whoop somebody's ass and they loved it and they recorded me singing it on their show and then after I left they kept playing it like every day and it, it became this thing that just it kind of just it blew up and wow. then others and then other stations all across the country started playing it and you know it, it it is what it is. The it's been a blessing and a curse because a lot of people that are introduced to my music, that's the first thing they hear. And right. so they mistakenly sometimes think that, you know, I'm I'm Ray Stevens or something. You know <laughs> you know right. what I'm saying? You know right, right. and I'm and I'm not. And and so I have a love hate relationship with that song because, you know, it's uh, you know, my daughter's seventeen year old soccer team enough time has went around that they have made it like their anthem when they go to the play soccer games. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I'm, 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 you know, it is what it is. It's just, it's been a blessing and a curse because like of what I said before people, sometimes people will come to the show and they're, they want me to do a whole show of songs like that, you know, and I'm, yeah, yeah. I've consi- and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a, a legitimate songwriter and I, that's just one little thing that's, it's just, it's not, it's a good thing, but it's just one little, it's just a little speck of what I do. Right. Right. Well, we were talking earlier about, um, pimps and, and preachers, which of course is the, the title track for your 2010 album. But there's another, uh, song on the record called, I don't like half the folks I love. God knows they're all dear to me, but if the truth be told, I like it when they come, but I love it when they go. I'm sure 
um, you know, that that song is kind of funny, not not in the way of it's a great day to whoop somebody's ass it is funny, but it's got a little bit of a, a wry uh, sense of humor to it. But I look at that song and I almost wonder if it's maybe a bit of a companion piece with uh, Goodbye is the Last Word from your your most recent record, Never Lit Too Late to Call. I've been giving you everything Hoping you give something back But my gut keeps telling me Good luck with that Goodbye To all the pain you've put me through Goodbye Is the last word I will say both of those songs, in a way, um, are kind of a reckoning with um, the sort of people that are in our lives, um, and maybe <laughs> they're the kind of people we got to draw boundaries with. And you know, you've talked a bit about sort of uh, different competing uh, influences in your in your family background, but I'd love to hear your thoughts in terms of where. Um, songs like that, whether you do it in kind of a little more lighthearted way or whether it's more of like a serious reflection, um, if that's a, a bit of your own kind of wrestling with how you deal with these kind of difficult family relationships that, you know, I think most of us can identify with. Well, you know, oftentimes we only see our family members at holidays and, you know, like at Christmas time, you know, you might go in there and and have a meal together and then you go in the living room and open up your presents and then you need to start looking at your watch and as soon as you can get out of there without being so obvious you get out of there and <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's you know it, it's the to answer your question it's it's funny and it's serious because mm. you know uh it is a true fact that you you sh you should love everybody and uh, but it's impossible to like everybody, you know, and that's yeah. just that's just a that's what I'm trying to say in that song. And, uh, uh, you know, the other song you mentioned, Goodbye is the Last Word, that is me telling someone how to get rid of someone who is toxic. Hmm. Yeah. If you have if you have someone in your that's toxic in your life and they just it's not that they treat you bad sometimes, but they treat you bad all the time then you don't need that person in your life. And mm -hmm. goodbye is the last word was me tr trying to communicate to someone who's in a bad place. There is a way out. And the way out is to get out. Yeah. Yeah. You, you were talking before about what makes a, a writer a great writer. And we talked about potential and talent and, and work and things like that. And, and one of the things that I think of is what a writer's listening to. Um, you know, it's like garbage in, garbage out, or you are what you eat. And sometimes people that listen to great songs, their instincts can be kind of shaped by those things. Um, you know, What the Hell is Going On is the first album uh, that you put out that features just all the writing of other artists. You know, it's just the cover songs. What sort of brought you to that point of saying, hey, it's time. I want people to hear some of the things that I'm hearing. Well, uh, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, the reason I did that covers album which I'm proud of, I am proud of it, but um, how do I say this? I During a time when I should have been cutting a record, when when I did the What the Hell's Going On, I, my, I had a drinking problem, and hmm. it, it had accelerated uh, to the point where I wasn't being productive as a songwriter, and I just... I wasn't I wasn't doing nothing. All I was doing every day was recovering from hangovers, you know, and not being productive. And uh, 
And so Billy came up with this idea to do the covers record because I didn't have the songs. I wasn't bringing it, man. I wasn't uh, being uh, the writer I should be. And mm. uh, I have to say, I, although I'm glad I did that covers album, uh, but it was also something that filled in a gap of me not bringing it. Wow. I mean, regardless, when you when you decide like, hey, man, I don't, I, I'm not in a place right now where I'm going to be able to bring my A game. Um, you are still choosing, you know, what to record that that somebody else has recorded. You know, what what was that process like for you in terms of how to decide the other people's songs that you, you know, were going to present? Uh, just it was a collaboration. You know, I have I have to give I have to give Billy a lot of credit because. He saw that I wasn't in a good place, and I'm a, I'm gonna be honest. He he steered me, and he he kind of. I have to give him more credit for even picking the songs, man, because mm. I was just I was a wreck for a while there, and uh, he did. It, it really was, it was a have to situation, you know. It was a, I needed to do a record, but I just didn't have the songs, and and Billy saw I, what a mess I was, and and. Uh, he helped me get something out, if that makes sense. When you and Billy started working together, you, you know, you, you never know what somebody's going to mean to you and what they're going to mean to your career. You start off because, like, oh, we can write songs together, and he's got these great instincts. He's going to help shape me as a writer. And then yeah. down the line, you find that he that he sees you personally and where you're at and is able to kind of pick up the slack and, and help you get to the next step at a moment when you couldn't. That's that's a pretty amazing relationship. It really is, you know, and, and, you know, our business arrangement has always been just a handshake and, uh, wow. he's, you know, he's somebody I trust and, and, uh, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have him in the picture. There ain't no doubt about it. Um, well, your 2014 album, Too Blessed to Be Stressed is getting back to the writing and, you know, uh, songs like Everything's Gonna Be Alright on that record are, um, kind of the, the positive, uh, anthemic kind of you know feel good sort of stuff uh there's another song on that record um that maybe isn't as well known called i backslide on friday uh that i think is um kind of clever you know you talk about that that southern um you know there's a certain shared experience of having grown up in the south and there's a certain language and uh uh, anyone who grew up in church in the South, like all three of us did, has heard the term uh, backslide. <laughs> and yeah. it's probably a term that's uh, potentially unfamiliar to people who didn't come from that same kind of environment. But that's a, a clever song kind of walking through each day of the week and in this cyclical pattern. I start off with the best of intentions till my lack of follow through gets in the way. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, like you don't want people to, to think of you as as Ray Stevens. And I always draw a distinction. I, I kind of reference Ray Stevens as like the, the corny uh, version of funny songwriting. But then you have kind of what you do and guys like, you know, Todd Snyder or Robert Earl Keane do where it's 
it's funny, but it's not in a hammy way. It's it's clever and it's um, you know, you kind of at the same time sort of chuckle and you also go, wow, that's some good writing, you know. Um, and that was one of those songs for me uh, that, that struck me in that way. And I, I'd love to just hear a bit more uh, about the writing of that one. Oh, well, you know, for those that don't that don't know what backsliding means, that means like in the Pentecostal faith is you come to church and you pray in the altar and and God comes into your heart and you quit drinking and you quit carousing and you quit sleeping with your neighbor's wife. You quit all the things you've been doing that's wrong and you live right. But what backsliding is, is when you go back to the bad stuff again you backslid they call it mm. oh so-and-so backslid they drinking again oh so-and-so this so-and-so that you know it's it's a it's taking a backward step in your in your moral being that's what having and and you know every one of us if we're honest you know we backslide all the time you know it's like you know there ain't nobody that does good all the time so we always we're always going to be backsliding that's and that's mm. the the song i backslide on friday is just to let everybody know look you're not alone we're all flawed and we all uh we all do things uh intentionally wrong you know okay. we don't some people call it a mistake a mistake and doing something intentionally wrong is two different things a mistake is slipping on a banana peel you know <laughs> <laughs> that's a mistake but going out but uh but uh going over and uh sleeping with your neighbor's wife that's not a mistake that's thought out yeah, <laughs> yeah so backslide on friday is just to let everybody know we're all the same and let's just sing about it well, you know, after that, we had 2018's Don't Let the Devil Ride album. And maybe that's the album where we talk about influences and listening and, and what made you as a writer and what made you as a man. Because these are covers of gospel songs that, that were around when you were growing up. Yeah, yeah. You know, life is up and down. Like I just said I, about the I backslide on Friday thing. The, th the 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 I always wanted to do a gospel album uh when the time was right and to be completely honest during the time i cut uh don't let the devil ride i was still struggling with my drinking mm. and and it and my songs had got i got back into the thing where i wasn't producing songs like i was and billy once again to give him credit he said maybe this is time we should do the gospel album mm. and so uh we had a window and an out and uh accessibility to the blind boys of alabama who are an institution in the gospel world and we became friends with them and we had done shows with them down through the years and uh i got the blind boys to agree to cut a record with me and so uh i did this guy it's so contradictory that i was cutting this gospel record but at the same time i was struggling with drinking and um this this which by the way i i've in the next month i will be s sober for a year so wow. i'm i'm feeling good i That's feel amazing. better than i've ever felt i've i've had my ups and downs with drinking but i, I really believe I'm, I'm i'm putting in the past yeah. uh and uh as they say in the church god is working on me you yeah. know and I'm trying to work on myself too, but uh, I am proud of that record. I just wished I'd have been in a better state of mind when I did it, you know. And we went out and did a great tour together. We 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 it was a really nice thing to get into work with the Blind Boys. Yeah. 
Well, you know, you, you talk about sort of this, this nature of contradiction uh, in, you know, struggling with drinking and making a gospel album at the same time. But then I think, you know, maybe that's the place to be in a way because you're writing songs about needing divine help. And was yeah. there any point at which the music kind of spoke to you while you were making the record? Yeah. And said, actually, you know what? This is meeting me where I'm at right now. Yeah, it is. It is. You know, the good example is, you know, uh, uh, Hank Williams Sr. was an alcoholic and he died of drinking. But at the same in the same breath, he wrote, I saw the light, you know. Right. And some, so, yeah, when I was when I was in a bad place uh, i knew that i was headed in the right direction if i could just if i could just muster up the strength and make that step you know and singing them songs it did help me it did it did give me some encouragement for sure yeah yeah um well i want to spend a little time uh, before we go talking about never too late to call which is your most recent studio album came out last year um and we kind of started out talking about Tupelo and the the magic of of that city and kind of the musical vibe there. Um, I understand that you recorded Never Too Late to Call in Memphis, which is another city that I think has a unique uh, vibe. And I'm curious in what ways just, you know, obviously you have songwriting and you have recording, which are, you know, often different parts of the same process. Um, but you know, once you have these songs and you're figuring out how you're going to cut them and, and, you know, what configuration, you know, and, and where you're going to do it and all that, in what ways did just being in Memphis and, and making a record there as opposed to Nashville or Tupelo or, or wherever, um, what, what kind of influence did that have for you in, in terms of the way the album came out? Uh, well, first of all, I recorded the album at Sam Phillips, uh, recording studio and memphis uh and i got acquainted with this young producer his name is matt ross spang and he's he's just really unheralded this guy should be a household name he's i believe he's a great producer and and uh what i approached him about doing this record because he worked at, at sam phillips there where i was going to do it and uh he asked me to start sending him songs just sing them into my iPhone. He said, just sing them into your iPhone with your acoustic guitar. And just, I started sending him songs. And we can't, he came up. I kind of had this idea, but he kind of came out and said it first. He said, man, you should do an entire record where it's based around your acoustic guitar and these demos that you're sending me. He said, we'll put some things around it. We'll put the band in there, but it'll be a lot more sparse than anything you've ever done. It'll be a lot more stripped down and it'll be more lean toward uh, the acoustic side. And and so uh, we went down there and I did something I'd never done before. I literally just sat there and played and sang the songs. And huh. that that's how we cut the record. And uh, uh, I'm really proud of it. And uh, it's uh, and like I said, never had played. I never had played played guitar on the rec on my records at all. I usually just sing the song and then the band plays it. But uh, yeah, it's a, uh, it is what it is, and I'm real proud of it. It's pretty cool, even the way you describe you know presenting those songs at at the forefront of just hey, I'm just gonna sit and pull out my phone and record them on guitar because that that reminds me of what you said about how you first you know kind of came out and how people experienced you was get up in front of 13,000 people with just your voice and your guitar, you know, the power of you presenting a song, it's kind of all you need. Yeah. 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 There's, a, I, 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 I really think we, we, I took a turn in the right direction on that one. 
you know, in addition to the album maybe being able to draw a through line of, of you and your acoustic guitar, it's also a bit of a, a family uh, through line there, too, in terms of the title track being, you know, about your sister and, yeah. uh, you know, breaking up for good again is, you know, your your wife joins you on, on some vocals on that track. And obviously the song is, you know, kind of autobiographical. Um, Sapphire Dream is something that you wrote with your daughter when she was a kid and, and she sang on that, you know, so there's this real kind of intimate family thread that, that runs through that as well. And I'm wondering if um, you look at this collection of songs as, as maybe being your most personal. Oh, uh, it's, uh, yeah, I think so. And it's also introspective too, you know, cause, uh, you know, I've been married for 22 years and, you know, the song breaking up for good again, anybody that's married can understand what that song is about, you know, cause you love that person you're with, but there are times when, you know, you need to take a break from one another, you know, you get in fights and stuff and, you know, uh, and, uh, when I was writing that song, I, uh, I was working on it in my living room and I heard my wife singing harmony just in the background. And I just had this idea, well, why don't you just sing this song with me on the record? And she did. We both tried to move on, but we don't stay gone too long. We're just breaking up for good again. It's track it came out really good and uh, we wound up uh, a couple months ago we sang it on together on the Grand Ole Opry and wow. uh, and she had never sang anywhere in her life except church and so wow. so she went from singing in church to singing the Grand Ole Opry and we had a nice moment and, and it was something I'll never forget so both of your first show was <laughs> was quite an experience you were out there in front of 13,000 people and she's up on the stage of the Opry that was yeah when I wow. took her, yeah, when we when we went into the Opry building, uh, you know, they had pictures of celebrities and who all had played there on the walls, and she wouldn't look at it. She would look. She looked at the floor because wow. she didn't she didn't want to see all those people because she was already nervous and she didn't want to she didn't want to exaggerate it by looking at all these other great people, you know. You talked earlier about you know it's a great day to whoop somebody's ass being kind of like a live thing, you know. It's not something that you um, put on a record and, and, you know, it kind of got traction and, and became its own thing. But you're an artist who is very much known as uh, a live performer. And there's other songs from your catalog, like Joni, the Jehovah's Witness stripper. And yeah. I guess I'll just stay married, you know, things that, uh, kind of live a life as live performance songs, you know, more than, than as, as records. And, um, I'd love to just get your thoughts because you are such a, a live, um, you know, act and, and there's something about your, um, you know, th something about the, the way that you sing and, and perform that connects with people in a live setting. Uh, I would just love to get your thoughts on in what ways that has shaped you as a songwriter, because you do have the opportunity, the very immediate feedback of being able to 
play songs for people, see how they react. You know, you, you kind of learn what works, you know, what connects with people, what doesn't, so, you know, so you're not necessarily a guy who's hiding out, you know, in a, in a studio who, who's never interacting with the audience. You have this very real kind of relationship with your audience. So uh, do you have any thoughts about how, you know, that has influenced you and, and brought you to who you are as a songwriter today? Well, as far as connecting with people, I have to give the most credit actually to my father, the preacher, because even though my daddy was, you know, he was a preacher, he preached about Jesus and, and he helped people. Uh, one, of, one of the things he did also from the pulpit was he entertained people. He, he, he would tell little jokes and uh, between the scriptures and everything, and he'd get people laughing. And then the icing on the cake was after church, he would go out in the foyer and he would shake everybody's hand. He'd look them right in the eye and say, I love you and I appreciate you coming. Uh, you know, come back and see us again. And I guess the, 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 the secret, and you can't fake it, you gotta, you gotta really mean it, but the secret is loving people. Man, if you go out there on that stage and you love those people, they'll feel it and, that's, that, the, and they'll come back. They'll, they'll want to see you again, and, and I want to see them again. It's, it's a two-way street kind of love. But the, whatever I've been able to accomplish, it's from loving people. That's, mm. That is everything. Very cool. Well, Paul, thank you so much uh, for spending a little time with us today, and uh, we want to encourage our listeners to definitely check out Never Too Late to Call, which is the most recent record. Uh, very cool record. Some amazing songs on there. Uh, and uh, once again, just uh, appreciate your time. I really, truly appreciate y'all inviting me to be on the show. I really do. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. And of course, nothing beats a personal recommendation. Perhaps take a moment right now to text or email one friend who you think would appreciate what we do, and send them a link to our show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. As a reminder, you can sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.